Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Let us go now to 1 Timothy 6, and we will read only verses 20 through 21, the conclusion to Paul's letter to Timothy. Here we read, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Paul's letter to Timothy ends where it began, with an exhortation to Timothy To guard the gospel that was entrusted to him. This is what Paul exhorted Timothy to do back in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. At the very beginning of his letter, we read, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So at the very beginning of this letter, Paul said to Timothy, Here is what you are to be sure of in Ephesus. Make sure there is no different doctrine, Timothy. That is where Paul began. And now he brings his letter to a conclusion saying, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So as I have said, Paul ends where he began. Timothy was to guard the gospel. He was to promote and protect sound doctrine. This was to be among his chief concerns. This was Timothy's calling, and it is the calling of every pastor and elder who serves within Christ's church. The gospel is to be kept Pure, sound doctrine is to be promoted and preserved, for God's word is like bread and water to our souls. God's people will languish if they are fed corrupted food. They will wither if they are presented with polluted water to drink. Guard the deposit entrusted to you, Paul says. 
Now, I've devoted an entire sermon to verses 20 and 21 for two reasons. One, these verses do stand alone in Paul's letter. They are the concluding remarks, the final charge given to Timothy. And two, the church needs to carefully consider how central this work of guarding the deposit is to the work of the ministry. This is a very important aspect of the ministry. Ministers still to this present day must guard the deposit, and the church must be concerned to see it happen. And So let us now consider this text bit by bit. At the beginning of verse 20 we read, O Timothy, the, the O here adds emphasis to the address. O Timothy, you can hear the apostle pleading, can't you? It, through his writing, O Timothy, please be sure to do this. Uh, th- that is the sense here. And what was Timothy commanded to do? He was to guard the deposit that Paul and others had entrusted to him. To guard is to hold on to something or to someone closely. A prison guard keeps close watch on the prisoners to keep a hold on them. A security guard keeps a close watch on someone or something of value to be sure it is not harmed or stolen. And Timothy was to guard the deposit. He was to keep it safe and return it as he received it. So what is this deposit that Paul entrusted to Timothy's care? I think the context is very clear. It was the gospel, that is to say, the truth of God's word or sound doctrine. This was what Timothy was to guard. The Christian faith, in other words, was entrusted to him. Paul and others took the Christian faith, Christian doctrine, sound doctrine, the gospel itself. They took it, they had received it from Christ, by the way, and from the Old Testament scriptures, the apostles and prophets being the foundation of the church. They took Sound doctrine, they handed it to Timothy and others in the early church. And here Paul says to Timothy, guard this, keep this, keep a close watch on it. Do not allow it to be corrupted. Do not allow it to be hijacked. Keep this deposit. Uh, That was the deposit that was entrusted to Timothy's care. It was the Christian faith that was entrusted to him. And this was the precious thing that he was to keep. So important was this that Paul commanded Timothy to do the same thing in the second letter that he wrote to him. In 2 Timothy 1.13, we read, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So 1 Timothy concludes with this exhortation, Guard the deposit. And 2 Timothy begins here. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The deposit there is referred to as the sound words that he had heard from Paul. And a little later in 2 Timothy, Paul adds, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So here we learn something very important about the Christian faith. It is not something that evolves. It is not something to be added to or taken away from. There is no need at all to improve upon it, for it was whole and complete when Christ delivered it to His holy apostles, and His holy apostles entrusted it to the next generation of pastors and teachers. These pastors and teachers, men like Timothy, were not called to alter or develop or advance what they received. They were to 
guard it. And having guarded it, they were to entrust it to other faithful men who would do the same. That next generation was to also guard the deposit. They were to teach it to others also, and that process was to continue from that day forward. I think here we have more evidence that there are no longer apostles and prophets in the church today. By the way, apostles and prophets spoke authoritatively. Thus says the Lord, they wrote Scripture. Why are there no more apostles and prophets in the church today? Because God has spoken fully and finally through Jesus the Christ, the incarnate Word of God. And the apostles of Christ were commissioned to testify to what they heard from Him, what they saw. They were to testify to the reality of of the resurrection. And it was this word of the apostles, the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Christ and His resurrection. It was their word that was entrusted to Timothy and the next generation. And from that day forward, um, this pattern would continue. No more apostles or prophets, but rather pastors and teachers who are to be found faithful to the word that was entrusted to them. How did Christ entrust the faith to His apostles? And how did His apostles entrust the faith to the next generation? And they, the next generation after that, how did they do it? Well, they taught the Scriptures. They demonstrated that Jesus was the Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. This is what Christ did with His disciples in His earthly ministry prior to His death, but especially after His resurrection. We are to remember that passage in Luke 24, 27. It's in that passage that we get our name, Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. What did Christ do? He showed from the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, that He was the Christ. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the apostles did the very same thing. They proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. And His apostles as eyewitnesses of the resurrection were especially commissioned to testify concerning the finished work of Christ. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they either wrote or oversaw the writing of the New Testament Scriptures. The New Testament testifies to the work that Christ has accomplished and applies that finished work to the new covenant people of God. So where do we find this deposit that was entrusted to Timothy? Where do we find it? The answer is that we find it in the Scriptures. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, true and sound doctrine, the Christian faith, is contained within the Old and New Testaments of the Holy Bible. There we find the faithful words of Christ, His apostles and prophets. There Paul's teaching, for example, is preserved for us. There we may see and clearly understand what Paul taught concerning Jesus the Christ. There we may come to understand how Paul proclaimed Christ from the Old Testament. And there in the Holy Scriptures we may also understand how the finished work of Christ is to be applied to the new covenant people of God. Paul taught the Christian faith to Timothy orally. But he also wrote, as you know. And what he said to Timothy in private conversation, can you imagine this sitting there, Paul and Timothy, uh, meeting with one another, the Christian faith being taught to Timothy orally? There must have been many meetings between the two of them. They had a sweet relationship. Um, But what he taught to him orally, what he said to him, and what he wrote, uh, we must say, did surely agree 
what Paul said in private conversation, what he taught to the church verbally, and what he wrote, which we now have in the pages of Holy Scripture, these two things, the oral teaching and the written teaching, did surely agree. The Roman Catholic Church makes much of this distinction between the written word and oral tradition. And this is how they attempt to account for their many strange doctrines that are nowhere to be found within Holy Scripture. Have you ever wondered that? How, how did you come to this conclusion that we are to do these things or that these things are true? Where did these strange doctrines, doctrines uh, concerning uh, purgatory or uh, the veneration of Mary uh, or treasury of merit or any such doctrine as this, where did these come from? Well, they claim that they arise from tradition. And I am saying there is no warrant for this. Uh, what Paul said and what he wrote surely agreed, for example, so that his oral teaching and his, his, his teaching that came to us by way of writing that has been preserved in the pages of Holy Scripture, they, they are one. They agree, and certainly he was careful to write down the essential things to be preserved from generation to generation. So this distinction between oral tradition and Scripture simply will not explain the blatant contradictions that exist between Rome's doctrine of justification by faith and works and Paul's teaching regarding justification by faith alone. For example, uh, this is to name just one thing. Yes, we agree that Jesus, Paul, and the other apostles said many things that were never written down. In fact, John famously tells us so at the end of his gospel, saying, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, I've only given you a very brief summary of, of the, the work of Christ and His teaching here in this gospel, the gospel of John in this instance. But it would be foolish to think that the oral teaching of Christ and His apostles would contradict what is written. But this is what we find in Rome's distinction between the authority of Scripture and so-called tradition. Where do we find the Christian faith? Where do we find it? Where do we go for true and sound doctrine? We must go to the Scriptures. We go to the Scriptures and we labor to interpret them and apply them in the way that Christ and His Apostles did. And we allow the more clear passages of Scripture to shine light on the less clear. The Scriptures are our authority for truth, and we must labor to rightly divide them or correctly interpret them. So I might ask you, do the Reformed find any value at all in the interpretive tradition of the church? Do we find value in the interpretive tradition of the church? Yes, we do. We hold the writings of the early church fathers in high esteem. When we say early church fathers, we're referring to those who, who were the next generation of, of, of leaders within uh, the church after the age of the apostles. Do we value their writings? Of course we do. We, we value their, their writings. We cherish the creeds and confessions of the church that have stood the test of time. We are not so foolish and arrogant to disregard those who have gone before us. We may learn from these writings. We may be greatly helped by the insights that are found there. Uh, they summarize the Holy Scriptures and they attempt to summarize the Christian faith for us. We are not opposed to the tradition of the church. No, but we are aware that men are fallible. Men are fallible. They are prone to err. 
But all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is our belief. The Scriptures are infallible. The Scriptures do not err. The Scriptures come to us, not from man, but, but from God. They are breathed out by God, and therefore they are, they are profitable. We must run to the Scriptures. They are our authority for truth. In First and Second Timothy, Paul exhorts Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to him and to entrust it to others. And what does Paul direct Timothy to do? What is Timothy to run to, to depend upon, to be equipped for every good work as a man of God? He is to run to the Holy Scriptures. That is what 2 Timothy 3.16-17, which I have just read, says. So we're to take all of this together. Guard the good deposit, Timothy. You guard it. You keep it. Do not allow the Christian faith to be corrupted. Don't allow it to be hijacked. Guard the deposit, Timothy. And in fact, Timothy, you must take this, this deposit that has been entrusted to you and you must entrust it to others. Make sure that you do this, Timothy. And what does Paul direct Timothy to as his authority for truth? As a man of God, as a minister in God's church, he says, again, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Go to the Scriptures, Timothy. Go to what has been written, Old Testament and New. Go to the Scriptures, Timothy. Uh, there we find this deposit that was entrusted to Timothy so long ago. And this is why the very first thing we confess is, and here I will quote Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 1, paragraph 1. The very first thing we confess is, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times, that is, in different times, and in diverse manners, to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing." which makes Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. What is the very first thing we confess? The Scriptures are our authority for truth. We must run to them. It is there that the Christian faith is found. It is there that this good, good deposit that was trusted, entrusted to Timothy is found. And then in paragraph 10 of chapter 1, of our confession, we say, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and is in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. In other words, how do we, 
How do we wrestle through controversies in religion? We run to the Scriptures. How do we judge the writings of the early church fathers? We run to the Scriptures. How do we evaluate the creeds and confessions of the church as valuable as they are to us? We compare them against God's most holy word. And should they found to be found to contradict one another, which one wins in the end in our estimation? It is the Holy Scriptures. They are of a supreme authority to us. And so Paul began his letter with an exhortation to keep the doctrine that is the teaching of the church pure. Here in our passage today, he concludes his letter by returning to that same theme, saying, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And we should also remember that at the very heart of Paul's letter, he stated his purpose for writing, saying in chapter 3, verse 14 of 1 Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Do you remember that passage, brothers and sisters? So in the beginning, middle, and end of Paul's letter, it is the truth of God's Word that is emphasized. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Ministers in Christ's church are to guard the truth. For the church is designed to hold aloft true doctrine for all the world to see. She is to promote it and protect it. The whole church is to be concerned with this, and ministers have a special role to play. They are to guard this deposit that was entrusted to Timothy so long ago. But this same deposit has been entrusted to ministers within Christ's church throughout the history of the church. And may I ask you by way of application, are you eager to have your pastors do this in the church today. Are you eager to have them do this? They, like Timothy, who lived so very long ago, are called to guard the deposit entrusted to them, for they are ministers of the gospel in Christ's church. The deposit is the same deposit. It has been handed down from generation to generation and preserved marvelously for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. The Christian faith has not changed. It cannot change. For the work of Christ is finished. The practice of the Christian faith may look somewhat different from culture to culture and from generation to generation, but in substance, the faith is the same. And though it is true that the church has sometimes been more and sometimes less faithful to guard the deposit entrusted to us, indeed, in certain times and places, it has seemed as if the truth of the gospel was nearly snuffed out. If we study church history, we see this to be true. Sometimes there was great darkness that descended even upon Christ's church. Nevertheless, the Scriptures have been preserved. The Scriptures have been preserved. And the Scriptures do constantly call the church to be reformed and to be constantly reforming according to the written Word of God. And are you eager to have your pastors lead from the Scriptures to guard the deposit entrusted to them? Or will you go the way of the worldly church and say that doctrine does not matter? I think better of you, of course. But the temptation will always be there, brothers and sisters. The temptation will always be there for God's people, the church, to say, you know, doctrine really doesn't matter. In fact, if you can shorten your sermons a little bit, Pastor, and and just kind of make us feel good when we assemble together. We would appreciate that much. You know, just make us feel good. That's why we come. Not for all of this doctrine. Not for all of this teaching. Uh, we want to be 
encouraged. And I hope that you do feel good when you leave this place. I hope that you are encouraged. But I hope that you are encouraged according to the truth of God's most holy word. The temptation will always be there. The Christian faith is always under assault. And it seems that a common tactic of the evil one in this time and place is to convince churches that doctrine simply doesn't matter. What matters? Feelings matter. Being good matters. Love matters. Jesus matters. Whatever that means. But doctrine doesn't. In fact, so many in our day and age say, Doctrine divides, but Jesus unites. Let's just talk about Jesus. But forget the doctrine. But this is a lie straight from the pit of hell. The Christian faith is built upon the truth of God's Word. If those truths, truths regarding God, man, sin, Christ, salvation, the church, our worship, and our future, to name just a few things, if these truths are corrupted, then the Christian faith will not last. It will not stand. It will be no more. The truth is, is that love for God, faith in Christ, holy living, sound, and sound doctrine cannot be separated. These things cannot be divided. How can you love a God that you do not know? How can you trust in Christ without understanding who He is and what He has accomplished for you? How can you live a holy life before God without knowing what God requires of us and what He forbids? It is doctrine that informs all of this. And that is why Paul was so concerned to combat heresy within the church and to exhort Timothy, his co-worker, to guard the deposit entrusted to him. He says it over and over again in so many different ways. Do not allow this thing to be corrupted. What thing? The Christian faith, sound doctrine. Because if it is, then the Christian faith is lost. Even souls are lost if the gospel of Jesus Christ is so distorted. And if you wish for your pastors to do this, to guard the deposit entrusted to them, then you must support them in their work. Some of them should be supported financially so that they can devote themselves fully to this work. All must be supported with your prayers. And they should be encouraged in their work too so that they do not grow weary in it. And I speak very generally here and not condemningly at all, for you excel in these things, brothers and sisters. But do not cease to support your ministers in their work, brothers and sisters. Now, you're to maintain this disposition that you already have. You're even to grow in your appreciation for the work that your ministers are called to do. Support them. Support them with your prayers. Support them with your time, treasures, and talents. And support them by faithfully attending the worship services of the church and other classes to attentively listen to their teaching. This is one of the ways that you can support your ministers in their work. Have you ever thought of this? Your ministers labor to prepare teachings for you. Uh, they labor in this so that the church might be built up strong and true, but the teaching will accomplish nothing if the congregation does not listen. Do I need to say that? That's obvious, is it not? You must be here present. You must listen. And so perhaps I can exhort you here to attend the second service on Sundays, to sing, to pray corporately, but also to listen to this catechetical preaching, that is to say, doctrinal preaching. Why have I decided to do this? Because I want more work to do week after week? Another sermon to write? Was I bored? Was that it? I said, you know, I think I'd like to have more to do, more on my plate. No, 
We have decided to regularly preach through the central doctrines of the Christian faith because we believe that it is very needed and beneficial of the, for the people of God in, in all times, but especially in, in our day and age where doctrine has been so terribly neglected. If you would be here on the Lord's Day afternoon, you would learn something. Just because we teach the catechism to our children doesn't mean that you are beyond it or above it as adults who have been in the faith for decades. In fact, I would be willing to bet that for most of you, if you were here last Sunday in the afternoon and you heard that preaching on the Lord's Day Sabbath, it was new to, to, to many of you. To many of you. Wow, I had never thought of it that way before. Well, there's a reason you've never thought of it that way before, because this doctrine, which is at the heart of the Ten Commandments, which should be dear to the church, has been absolutely neglected for generations in this country. No one talks about it. No one is concerned with the question, how is God to be worshipped? On what day? It's interesting how... I'll stop. It's interesting how... Um, how neglected these doctrines have, have, have been. Even in churches that claim to love God's Word, and even in churches that claim to love the Ten Commandments, the same churches that were up in an, up in an uproar, you know, over the Ten Commandments being removed from the schools, have neglected them in their own homes and in, in the churches. Strange, strange thing. Um, but this is the state of things in, in, the, in the church today. And so we are preaching through uh, the catechism, using it as our guide, uh, because the catechism summarizes the teaching of Holy Scripture as it pertains to these core and central doctrines of the Christian faith. It, this, is, this is needed. You need it. I'm saying you need it. You do. So be present uh, to listen to the teaching that is provided here at Emmaus. Uh, your ministers long to fulfill uh, their calling, and they long to serve you in this way. My last point of application for this first point of the sermon is, let us also be sure to invest in the education of future ministers. This we must do. This has been a theme in my preaching, hasn't it? Um, this is going to be very important. For the future of our church, for the future of the church in this land, we must invest into the education of future ministers. Who will the Lord call to the ministry? It's impossible to say. But if a man is called to the ministry, he must be trained for it. And the congregation will need to get behind that. If sound doctrine is to be preserved and promoted within Christ's church, the sound doctrine must be first understood. This requires study. This requires the hard work of preparation. I was going through a box in my garage the other day, and I don't know how it ended up there, but I ran across this um, certificate in a plastic sleeve. What did it say on it? Um, certificate of Licensing to the Gospel Ministry. My name was on it. There was a date. I think I was 19 or 20. Signatures were there. I took a picture of it and sent it to my wife and I said, my goodness. You know, I, I thank the Lord for what He has done in my life and the way that He has called me into the gospel ministry. But if I had to do it all over again, I, I would not have done it in that way, brothers and sisters. I was far too young to be 
commissioned or licensed or it didn't even say ordained, but you know, that was the idea to the gospel ministry at that age. We need to invest into the education of future ministers. We need to be careful to appoint men to the ministry who are, who are, who are equipped, who meet the qualifications of Scripture, who are thoroughly trained. Because the assault that comes against Christ's church is, is, is intense. It is very intense. It is so easy for the church to go astray in regard to this command here, to guard the deposit entrusted to us. We must take this work seriously. I need to move along here. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And then Paul adds, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So guard this, Timothy. Guard the gospel. Guard the Christian faith that has been handed down to you. And avoid that. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And many students of the Bible have wondered what particular false teaching Paul was referring to here. Like, what was it exactly? Does it have a name? Um, well, the phrase, what is falsely called knowledge, has led some to believe that Paul was combating the heresy that came to be known as Gnosticism in the early church. Uh, the Gnostics taught, among other things, that salvation was attainable only through the attainment of some special secret and esoteric knowledge. That is, spe- special knowledge that only a select few within the faith, within the religion, had access to. And this Gnostic teaching runs contrary to the Christian faith on many points, one of them being their view of knowledge. In the Christian faith, the truth of the gospel and true doctrine is accessible to all, not just a few. And so you can see why some would see the heresy of Gnosticism behind Paul's warning here in this passage. But two things make this unlikely. One, Gnosticism would not fully develop and threaten the church until a little later in church history. And two, the teaching of the Gnostics does not fit exactly with what Paul says elsewhere in this letter regarding the false teachers who threatened the church in Ephesus in particular. Really, it does not matter who these false teachers were exactly. What Paul says here describes and applies to all forms of false teaching. One, notice that this distortion of the Christian faith that Timothy was to avoid was falsely called knowledge. And so it went by that name. Uh, That is what the proponents of this false teaching said concerning their teaching. We have true knowledge. We have true knowledge. It should be obvious to all that false teachers and their false teachings are able to creep into the church because they are disguised as the truth. False teachers do not creep into the church saying, Hey, everyone listen to me. I have something other than the Christian faith to proclaim. They do not do this. No, they claim to have the best and truest version of the Christian faith. They claim to have light and not darkness. True knowledge and certainly not a distortion of it. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are hidden reefs upon which men and women unknowingly run aground and make a shipwreck of the faith. So we're to think of this. These false teachers, whoever they were, claimed to have knowledge, true knowledge. And sadly, some within the early church believed them. And note this, 1 Timothy 6, 21, by professing it, some swerved from the faith. Okay, So this distortion was severe enough that by believing it, some ended up, in fact, abandoning the the Christian faith. And I think this should cause us to tremble, brothers and sisters. This should 
awaken us and sober us concerning the danger that false teachers and false teaching are to the church of Jesus Christ. Distortions of the Christian faith do cause some to swerve from the faith. Think of that for a moment. You know, I do think it is the mindset of, of many within the Christian church today that, you know, this little variation or that, it, it just doesn't matter that much. No, there, there is a point in which the gospel becomes so distorted, the Christian faith becomes so distorted that people who believe these distortions are no longer Christian. I suppose we could take a long time to talk about, well, when exactly does that happen? I, I, I don't know. But it happens. At some point, the gospel becomes no gospel. The Judaizers were doing that in the earliest days of the church. You know, if Christ is to benefit you, you must be circumcised in obedience to the old covenant law. You, you must be Judaized, you know. And Paul said, no way. No way. In fact, if you believe this, you're lost. And they are to be accursed for teaching it. The gospel has become no gospel in situations like that. Here I will repeat what I have just said. One, doctrine does matter. When doctrine is distorted and believed, those who believe it swerve from the faith. Doctrine matters. And two, how important it is therefore to have men who are well trained in the Christian faith serving as ministers within Christ's church. Ministers have a special obligation to guard the good deposit of the faith entrusted to them. And how will this deposit be guarded if it is not known? It must be known, dear brethren. Ministers must be well trained in the faith. They must have sound doctrine if they are to effectively keep it. I, I um, belabor this point perhaps because over the course of time and by studying more and more deeply on these things I've come to realize that it is complex. It is challenging. It can be hard to identify counterfeits. It has been famously said before that the best way to spot a counterfeit is to grow very familiar with the original. Have you ever heard that before? Those who are trained to spot counterfeit currency do not only study the counterfeits no, more than this, they spend a great deal of time studying and handling the genuine thing. When a counterfeit comes their way, they are quickly able to say, something is not right here. I don't know what it is yet, but it, it's off. It's just not right. And then upon closer examination, they are able to identify what it is that is not right. And so it is with the one who is well trained in Christian doctrine. His familiarity with true doctrine increases his sensitivity to all that is false. He develops discernment. He develops the ability to quickly say, something is not right here. And then upon closer examination, he is able to identify the fatal flaw, whatever it might be. Here I have said that ministers must be well trained in the faith. And they must also be faithful to teach the Christian faith to the congregation. And this will enable the members themselves to quickly identify false teaching, should it present itself. The members of the church, if they are well trained in Christian doctrine will be like the noble Bereans of Acts 17 who upon hearing the preaching even of Paul and Silas received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So here I am emphasizing the job that ministers have. They are to guard the deposit entrusted to them. But that does not mean that you have no work to do. No, you need to know the Christian faith also. You need to examine the scriptures to be sure that what you are hearing is indeed true. False teachers do not bring their false teaching into the church and say, Hey everyone, I have some strange and different teaching to present to you. Come and hear. No, they are often charismatic and personable people. They believe what they say and their teaching is going to be smooth and polished. It will be appealing to the ear. 
and it will have the appearance of truth to it. Brothers and sisters, know the original. That is the best thing that you can do, know the original. And I will say this is one of the reasons that a confession of faith is so very helpful to the church. The Word of God is our authority for truth. This has already been established. And confessions of faith summarize the central teachings and core doctrines contained within Holy Scripture. Through our confession, we say, here is what we believe the Scriptures to teach regarding God, creation, man, sin, and redemption in Christ Jesus, to name just a few things. When a confession is written down, it may be tested against the Scriptures by all who read it. And when a confession is written, it may be scrutinized over a long period of time. Generations may put it to the test. A confession is a very useful thing to ministers and members alike. One of its functions is to help guard the church against doctrinal error. Ministers and members may use it to quickly identify the error. They are able to say, what I am hearing does not agree with what we, as a congregation, have confessed to believe. And then that teaching might be more thoroughly scrutinized against the authority of Holy Scripture. The Confession, and ours is the Second London Baptist Confession, is a summary of the Christian faith. And so long as it is a faithful summary of Holy Scripture, and we believe it is, it may be identified with the deposit that has been entrusted to us and the faith against which all others are to be compared. And I do pray that you heard me correctly. I said, so long as it, our confession, is a faithful summary of Holy Scripture, and we believe it is, it may be identified with the deposit that has been entrusted to us and the faith against which all are to be, all others are to be compared. The confession is a summary of the Christian faith drawn from Scripture. Scripture is authoritative. The confession is a summary of its doctrines. Let us now briefly consider how Paul describes this false teaching, which is falsely called knowledge. First, he calls it irreverent babble. What a description of it. This teaching of the false teachers in Ephesus, it was irreverent babble. Irreverent here means godless and worldly. The word babble indicates that the talk of these false teachers was foolish and it was empty. And of course, it was foolish and empty talk because it was, at its core, irreverent. That is to say, godless and worldly. Where did the teaching of these false teachers originate? Where did it come from? And here Paul is saying, when he uses the word irreverent, he is saying, not from God. It did not come from God. It is worldly. It is godless. It did not come from God. It did not come down from heaven. No, their teaching was irreverent. It originated from the earth. It was the product not of God, but of man. And here is the difference between true and false doctrine. True doctrine is revealed from on high. It is from God, and it is received by men. Did you hear what I just said there? This is profound. You might not see it as profound, but this is very profound. True doctrine is revealed from on high. It is from God, and it is received by man. What do we do? We receive. What does God do? He gives. He reveals truth to us. But false doctrine is worldly and godless at its core. It originates in the heart and mind of sinful man. Now, how do we know what is from God? And what is from man? Were any of you thinking that? 
How do we know what is from God and what is from man? And a lot could be said about this, but one important observation to make is that God has revealed Himself to man in the course of human history by first acting and then speaking. Please remember this. God has revealed Himself to man in the course of human history by first acting and then speaking. In the beginning, God did what? He did something. He created the heavens and the earth. And then He did speak to Adam in the garden to instruct him how he should live in light of the act of creation. And in the days of Moses, God did act to redeem His people from Egypt by accomplishing mighty deeds before them. They saw it. And then what did He do? He spoke. He spoke to Israel by Moses to explain His redemptive work and to instruct them how they should live in response to it. That is why I read that passage at the beginning of the sermon that I did. God acted. He delivered. He came to deliver. And then He spoke to Moses. And then He spoke. The, the speaking of God, the, the revelation was accompanied by action in human history. And in the days of Christ, God did act to accomplish our redemption. The virgin was with child. Christ lived on earth and performed mighty deeds. He died and raised, was raised on the third day. And He ascended. Christ did come. God acted to accomplish our redemption. And then God did speak. Christ taught. His apostles taught. But their teaching was an explanation of the work that God had accomplished. It was an explanation, an application of it. This is very significant. I hope you can see the significance of this. God's revelation of Himself to us follows His work of creation and redemption. And the word of Christ, His apostles and prophets were accompanied by signs and wonders to testify to their truthfulness. God has revealed His truth not through the words of men only, but by acting in creation and redemption and then speaking. Stated differently, God has spoken to us not by sending teachers only, so that we are left with the opinion of one man set against the opinion of another. No, God has acted miraculously in creation and redemption. He has spoken to us supremely through His Son who performed miraculous deeds in life, who died and rose again. And His apostles have testified concerning Him. They themselves performed miraculous deeds to confirm their explanation and application of the finished work of Christ was indeed true and from above. But the philosophies and religions of the world are irreverent. They are godless. They have their origins not in heaven and with God, but on the earth and in the hearts and minds of sinful men. Brothers and sisters, the Christian faith is a revealed faith. God has revealed it by acting in history and by giving us His Word. It is not the product of the imagination of men. It is from God. And this is what Peter so beautifully says in 2 Peter 1, 16-20. Listen very carefully to this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Did you hear that? Peter, an apostle, says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from, the, from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him 
by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you see this? Peter is saying, our words are true. Our words are true because we have received them from on high. And we know that we receive them from on high because God did act in our presence. Heard His voice. We saw the glory. Christ rose from the dead. Consider all of this. God acted and then He spoke. When Paul describes false teaching as irreverent, that is godless and worldly, this is what he means. Its origin is not in God but in man. It is to be avoided therefore, for it is nothing more than empty babble. The teaching that is to be received, promoted and protected is that which has come to us from above, supremely through the incarnate Word of God, who lived, died, and rose again for His people. Any teaching which does not conform with his is to be rejected. For long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Secondly, Paul refers to this false teaching as contradictions. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And this is a wonderful description of all forms of false teaching. They are contradictions. This means that they are filled with inconsistencies. They are internally inconsistent. They do not agree with the reality of the world that God has made. And of course they contradict God's special revelation too. False teaching is filled with contradictions. Timothy and every minister of the gospel must avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge while guarding the deposit entrusted to them. And now lastly and very briefly, Timothy was to do this. He was to guard the deposit entrusted to him by the grace of God and in full dependence on the strength that he supplies. Paul's last words in this wonderful letter are, Grace be with you. It doesn't really come through in the English. But in the Greek, the word translated as you is in the plural. So really what Paul said was this, grace be with you all. So think about that. That agrees with what I've been telling you all along. Though this letter was addressed to Timothy, and though it is particularly applicable to pastors, this letter is for the whole church. It was not to be read by Timothy and then stuck in his drawer. No, instead it was to be shared with the whole church for the whole church must know what ministers are called to do. And most of what Paul called Timothy to do has application for all Christians. Grace be with you, Paul says. And oh, how we need God's grace. God calls us to Himself by His grace. He calls us according to His unmerited favor. He draws us to Himself and gives us the gift of faith. All of it is undeserved. But we do not leave grace behind no, we are to continue in grace. We are to grow in grace and finish with grace. We need God to sustain us throughout the Christian life and to the very end. Let us be found trusting always in Him and in Christ, the Savior, whom He has sent. Amen. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have determined to reveal yourself to us. You have acted in human history and you have spoken. Lord, give us the wisdom to listen to your voice and to obey you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.